Thank you for downloading and listening to This Pathological Life. If you're interested in continuing the story, we have a second series called This Medical Life. Please download it and subscribe now. Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life? Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them. Jessica, I'll be doing your test today. Are you here for COVID? Yes, I am. Not a problem. Have you got your form with you? Oh, yes, I do. Great. Can I have a look at that one? Sure. Amid this atmosphere of testing for COVID-19 around us, uh, it's part of the landscape at the time of recording this podcast. Dr. Travis Brown, um, is this something you expected to see in your lifetime? It isn't. Uh, This is a... Unusual to think, but uh, to be honest, this feels like a once-in-a-lifetime kind of, uh, type of event. When we start looking about it, we have to think about, well, what is uh, an epidemic and a, and a pandemic? Yes, what is the difference between those two? The first one is, what is an epidemic? And effectively, it's a disease or an infection that occurs suddenly and in excess numbers. With a pandemic, it's a widespread epidemic, meaning that it can occur in a region, in a country, in a continent, or worldwide. The only other thing that we should mention is what an epidemiologist is, and that's a person who studies these epidemics and pandemics, usually from a government or a a public health perspective. And it's an epidemiologist, someone who's good to be sat next to at a dinner party? <laughs> Depends on the epidemiologist. Uh, it, they, they tend to have a very interesting job, but it's one of those ones where it tends to be more about numbers and statistics, movements of diseases. So it's very interesting, sometimes can be a bit dry, uh, but they are, it's a very interesting job. But their job has become uh, first and foremost front in this uh, pandemic. Yes, and I wonder how many practicing epidemiologists at the moment knew how uh, widespread the need for their role would be when they first began the process many years ago. And in fact, on that note, the numbers of epidemics and pandemics that we've had in the world, especially in recent time, can you quantify that for us? I mean, have I lived through pandemics without necessarily knowing it? We, we have. Uh, the, the interesting part, the World Health Organization actually did a, a fantastic presentation that's online. It's called Managing Epidemics. Uh, and they've released uh, effectively 10 to 11 classifications of epidemics that have occurred over the last 20 years. That includes things like the Zika virus, which uh, was 2014. We had cholera, so when we look at cholera, there's little outbreaks all around, so if someone likes their seafood and has something that's not cooked correctly, you get Vibrio vibrio cholera, uh, and you can get up to 20 litres of loss of fluid per day from that. So just keeping an eye on these infections. We often have seasonal influenza, and even every once in a while, the plague. In the last 20 years, we've had uh, one plague that has been in Madagascar in 2017. So that, that's a little blight on our world media, though, because I, I can't remember hearing much about that, possibly because it was in Madagascar. Yeah. It's, you have to be either take an interest in it or actually find, actively go and seek it, because unless it hits the, the news, 
then it will take a little bit of time for you to, to find out that it goes. And is it right, someone suggested to me that HIV, the way that broke out, would actually be classified as a pandemic. That's right. So when we look at it, the, the World Health Organization has classified over 1,500 new pathogens since 1970. So with that, not all of them are public health concerns. But there are a few notable infections uh, that, that come up. One is Ebola, which is a, quite a scary disease, to be honest, to, to see. Uh, that's caused over 25 epidemics over, over the past 40 years and been responsible for over 10 to 11,000 deaths. Typically in African countries, but sometimes uh, it goes into areas uh, with regards to being able to transition from from that because of the nature of the way we live now. There's also HIV, which was identified in 1983, which has been responsible for over 70 million infections, uh, around about 35 million deaths in the space of 40 years. So yes, HIV is a pandemic uh, that uh, we've lived through. We've gotten to the point now where because treatment is so effective, HIV is almost going into a chronic disease category uh, where we can manage it effectively. And so with these pathogens that are being identified over time, and, and I imagine some that are actually developing are new, how do you describe the different ways in which they spread? There's a few different ways to look at the, the spreading of the infection. One is how does it get from one place to the next? And this is when we look at transmission. So when we look at transmission, we have often what we call a vector involved, and that means that something's involved with transporting the infection from one person to another person. Typically what we have there is things like mosquitoes or ticks can cause it. When we look at a mosquito, malaria is a very good example of that, being with us for thousands of years, and it can bite a person who's infected, get the infected blood, and then bite a person who's not infected and transmit it to them. So uh, malaria is an example of mosquito, dengue fever, Ross River virus. Ones like that can be transmitted through mosquitoes. Lyme disease for ticks. When we look at uh, animal borns, it's called zoonotic transmission. And that comes to us either through animal bites or ingestion of animals, uh, where it, what we do, what we call, is it changes from a species barrier and comes into the human population. So typically bats are known to have quite a number of viruses that can come across, monkeys, primates, uh, chimpanzees. And that's believed where Ebola is thought to come from monkeys as well as HIV, which is thought to be uh, what was called SIV, so simian immunodeficiency virus, that then jumped the species barrier and came into humans from there. So once it's gotten from there, we also then have human-to-human -human classification of transmission. And that's looking at it from how do human pass it on to a human? we have things like contact. So if you touch inflected, infected fluid, so if that be blood, urine, feces, whatever's infected, and somehow that gets either ingested or into an open wound from yourself, then you will have a chance of getting that disease. And for the people in the front line, GPs, for example, who need to diagnose people in the first instance, are some of the methods of transmission through various vectors more of a challenge for them to pick up 
than others. So they are with with regards to so when when we look at you know contract precautions that's the the wanting to have a barrier between you and the person that you're treating. So that's why we talk about PPE, personal protective equipment, to having the right facilities or the right equipment to protect yourself from things like contact. And that's why contacts are an interesting one. That's how Ebola is transmitted. Uh, but when you start to get respiratory viruses, it's a cough or a sneeze. So these droplets that you get that are infective, and if you inhale them, then you have a chance of getting it. And the last one that we get most concerned about is aerosol. And that's because usually from respiratory, but it's not in droplet, it actually is suspended in the air and can stay suspended for quite some time. So they're the transmission ability of different viruses and pathogens to get from one place to the next. And in a moment, I want to look at the various transmission and reproductive rates. But to to lead us into that section with a, a thought, do you think on behalf of GPs who are working and passing these messages on about washing hands, trying staying home when you're sneezing, if there's ever going to be a silver lining from COVID-19 experience... Is increased population awareness of these methods something we could possibly you know, be thankful for? It is. It's sort of a, a wake-up call uh, for, for being able to prohibit transmission of viruses. Now, in the, the greater scheme of things, we will discuss in future with regards to how bad or how fatal COVID is. But with regards to it, looking at transmitting just a simple virus to another person, yes, people are starting to become aware of how simple that is, that it can be go through the population that quickly. So what we're hopefully will find is that things like influenza and just the normal common cold will reduce in incidence because the contact precautions we're doing for COVID are the same contact precautions that you would use for other respiratory viruses. So we should have been listening to those public health messages for a long time before now. So I'll get you to spell out your surname for me. R-O-B-I-N-S-O-N. And the spelling of your first name? H-E-L-E-N. And your date of birth? Oh, do I need to tell you that? Yes, please. <laughs> I'm old, is that enough? No. <laughs> so we've looked so far at epidemics and pandemics around the world. We've looked at transmission types and vectors. But the actual measurement, getting down to those rates, uh, people working in the medical field will probably have rolled their eyes listening to our news anchors try to describe our rates, etc. Let's get down to the tin tack because this is in your area of speciality. What is the reproductive rate and how do we measure things? What's a, a good primer? The reproductive rate is the average number of people an infected person will pass the infection onto. So if you have what we're talking about, what you'll hear a lot of news people talk about is flattening the curve. And effectively, that is a visual representation of the R value, meaning that if we have an R of one, it means that one person who is has the infection will pass it on to one other person who has the infection. Effectively, it will stay the same. That person will pass it on to one person, will pass it on to another person. That's an R value of one, reproductive rate. 
If, however, you have a reprodu reproductive rate of two, it'll pass it on. One infected person will pass it on to two infected people, will then pass it on to four infected people, eight, so on. So when they talk about exponential growth, that is what you're looking at. You'll see the curve will go up, more, pe more people are getting infected from less people, and it goes up. If you have a reproductive rate of less than, zero, less than one, what it means is the curve is going down. A person who has an infection may not pass it on to another person, depending on how low it is, and you'll get a drop in the curve. And that's what they're talking about. And so if we were trying to look at this from the side of the pathogens of the various viruses, the ones that are really bad are the ones that are going to have an R rate much lower than one, either because they haven't developed um, in an evolutionary term to look after their ongoing needs or the population is aware enough on how to curb the spread. So if we use a few examples, because it's always a bit hard, you know, R1, R2. If we look at just seasonal influenza, uh, seasonal influenza has an average reproductive rate of 1.2 to 1.4, meaning that it, in population levels, effectively you can't pass it on to a 0.2 of a person. But if you look at it, you have, let's look at it in whole numbers. So if 10 people have seasonal influenza, they're going to pass it on to 12. Or 100 will pass it on to 120. So you'll get growth of that going throughout the community. Now, that's a little bit of artifactual as well because we also have vaccines that will come into play for that, but we'll just ignore that for the moment. When we start to look at things like Ebola, you know, from 2014, the Guinea epidemic, what happens is we have a reproductive rate of 1.5. So when we get that, it means that one person or 10 people will pass it on to 15 100, we'll pass it on to 150. So it starts to hit home with regards to what is that number, what does it mean? When we get to ones like measles, let's talk about pre-vaccine. This is not going to be a good number, is it? <laughs> we have an R value of 14. So if you look at that, it's a significant impact to society when one person can pass an infection onto 14. And that's when we're talking about that aerosol. Measles is an aerosol. If someone sneezes and it's in their lungs, it can hang in the air for a long time. And that's why it has such an amazing ability to spread and why we get so worried about it in communities which have uh, reduced vaccination rates because it's such a transmissible disease. In fact, we've lived in a sort of privileged bubble for a while, parts of the of parts of the world, and which has allowed us to get a little bit lax. And perhaps another silver lining of our experience with COVID nineteen is that reminder that these vaccinations, these keeping on top of things, really crucial, which has got to work through the messaging at that frontline level all the time. It's it's been a, a reminder of how important or how essential vaccinations are. And that what we need is just to be every once in a while reminded that it's useful to go through and have vaccines and to have the, the ones on the, with the schedule. And of course, the pigeon pair with reproductive rate is the case fatality rate or CFR. How do you, if you're asked at a dinner party, how do you <laughs> define that? 
So the, the case fatality rate is, is a calculation of the number of people that will die from the disease over a given time. So it is an overall look. It's an, it's an assessment of how fatal is this disease over a period of time. So when we look at that, it's a, pretty much a measure of how fatal the disease is. So if we look at this from, again, using some examples, let's say seasonal influenza again. So we know it has a reproductive rate of 1.2 to 1.4. It has a case fatality rate of 0.1%. So meaning that in a thousand people who have the infections, one person will die. Now, when you look at that, it doesn't sound like much, but you put that in a city of a million people, a thousand people die from influenza, seasonal influenza. If we look at uh, the, there was a, a pandemic in 2009 that was influenza. That's not exactly uncommon, uh, but pandemics do happen from time to time, and influenza is almost the universal one that can do it. So it has uh, H1N1, and I probably should divert a little bit and say, what is H1N1? And H1 is they're proteins that are on the virus, and that's just pretty much how we subtype it. And so H stands for hemagglutinin, N stands for neuromididase, and with that, they're what we call virulence factors for the pathogen. So it helps the disease take hold, it causes infections and disease, and we type it based on that. There's 18 Hs in the world that we know of and classified. There's 11 neuromididases, Ns. And so you'll see influenza typed or subtyped just based on H3N2 and H1N1, whichever, whichever you, you go around. So the reason why we get so cautious or concerned about this H1N1, particularly in 2009, is it's the same classification or subtype as the 1918 pandemic that caused 20 to 50 million deaths during that time. So it was certainly worse than a seasonal influenza. It had a case fatality rate, a CFR, of 0.45%. Compare that with seasonal, 0.1%. That's quite a significant amount of people died from this H1N1. It certainly wasn't as bad as it as the 1918 calculations, but it was certainly something that caused a lot of consternation. If we go to the one and use Ebola as, as an example, it has a case fatality rate of 50% and a range of 25 to 90%, which is phenomenal when you compare it and why it's such a scary disease that a lot of people who get it will die from it. Okay, so I'm not going to be sleeping all that well tonight. Uh, so, Travis, how does the rubber hit the road when it comes to making use of the R value and the CFR value in the real world? So the best example we can use of that is two pandemics that have existed, our, probably our most notable ones in, in history. Let's look at influenza A from 1918. This is the H1N1. This is... When we look at it, if we set the scene, we're in 1918. This is the fourth year of World War I, where we have Allied versus the Central Powers. At that time, you've got the Eastern Front of Russia with Germany has collapsed. 
Russia has signed a peace deal with Germany and Russia is dealing with a civil war that's starting to rage out of control. On the Western Front, you have Germany preparing for its major spring, of, spring offensive called, called the Kaiserschlacht. During that time, we have a first case of influenza reported in the USA in Kansas of a private of the name of Albert Glitchell who reports to the army hospital with fevers of a sore throat, fever and a headache. Four hours later at lunchtime, over a hundred privates report to the same hospital with the same symptoms. Later on, throughout the US, jails and army barracks find they're getting all the same symptoms in the US. When we look at this, six months later, there is a German commander writing about how influenza is affecting his troops in the trenches. How did that virus get all the way through and you realize you're looking at it from a perspective of the world is in turmoil, there's nation states fighting each other, men and equipment is moving around the world at a place that has never been seen before. You have a systemic virus that's going through that is spread by droplets and men in trenches fighting one another. These people are also in the trenches fighting in less than ideal conditions. It's wet. They have not enough supplies, lack of food, and we get these pockets going out through Europe. So the reason we call it the Spanish flu, it's actually not from Spain as far as we can tell. It's just because the US, US, England and France wouldn't report it because anything that would hit the was considered negative media or negative press for the war was censored. So Spain was the one reporting it at the time and they called it Spanish flu. From there, two years later, there's around about 50 million deaths with a world population of 1.8 billion people and it accounts for about 2% deaths in the population, world population. When we look at the R value for that, there's two waves that they get concerned about. And the first is an R value in the spring of 1.8. So that's pretty significant that one person will go to two people. That's pretty significant. But then there's a second wave in autumn that has an R value of 3.8. Something happened where the virus shifted or drifted, changed just a bit, and the virus started to become much more infective. So that's an R value of it going around the world. But then if we look at the case fatality rate of the influenza in 1918, it's measured upwards of 2.5%. So when we look at that as an influenza, seasonal influenza is 0.1%, we look at the 1918, it's been calculated at 2.5%, which is huge. Now, if I take you back to 1347... Yes, I was hoping you would. (laughs) What we look at is there's rumours in Europe of a great pestilence coming out of Asia and North Africa. 
What they find is the 12, there are 12 ships. Our first recorded case is 12 ships coming out from the Black Sea, coming to Sicily, to the port of Messina, where I just imagine there's excitement of new, new ships coming in. These 12 ships dock. The gangplank goes down. But what they find is most of the people on the crew are dead. They either have blackened bodies and those that aren't dead have a horrible affliction of boils over their body filled with pus and blood. And they quickly push the ships back out, but the damage is already done. This is called the bubonic plague. And what it's called, why it's called the bubonic plague is because what they get under their arms are called bubos. And that is the infection of Yersinius pestis, which comes from rats on their fleas, bite people, and they get this bacteria. It goes and multiplies in their lymph nodes, causes abscesses, all kinds of problems. If it goes to the lungs, we call it pneumatic plague. And if it stays in the blood system, septic plague. So it's where the area. Now, this then led to 30 million deaths during the time with a world population of 350 million. Approximately 10% of the world's population died because of this. So when we compare it, let's look at it. Now, we don't have the stats for, for what happened back there, but we can use the Madagascar 2017 as a rule of thumb. So when we look at Madagascar, it had a, a reproductive rate of 1.7. So that's still pretty high with regards to it, but it had a case fatality rate of 5.5%. So that's in our modern era. You take it back 600 years, chances are it's going to be a lot higher than that. And in both those cases, you are talking about uh, pathogens, that viruses that have evolved naturally. Just to ask you, this is off the record, if you like, if you were going to create the best virus in your lab, what would be the ingredients? With regards to, you know, the flu and everything, oh, it's a hard question. <laughs> I'm not sure I've got a good answer for that. The per the, the, yeah. I'm actually worried that you do have a good answer <laughs> and you just don't want to share it. <laughs> Look, it's a, the, the, the challenge with, with viruses is, is almost a balancing act. There, there's one of those ones where there's transmissibility seems to be almost inversely proportional to mortality ability. So the more transmissible something is, it almost seems to be the less deadly it is. And that's almost by definition. It can get around the population. If it can get around the population well, then it's not causing lots of deaths. Yes, if it doesn't kill its hosts, then it's got a greater chance of living and passing exactly. on. Exactly. Vice versa. The ones that are more deadly tend to stop. That's right. So that's why you look at Ebola and you say it's caused about 10,000, 11,000 deaths, but it's horrific to watch or to see, or you know, even from a distance or even read about but influenza gets everywhere. So if you want to infect people, sort of respiratory virus is the way to go. So just on that, the CFR, so I'm using the lingo now, the case fatality rate for COVID-19, what's yep. that? So when we look at it, again, region specific, when we actually look at what the case fatality rate is of Australia, 
it's 1.3%. So that in itself is not, is very good, but it's hard until you compare. When we look at other countries, you have a case fatality rate in France of about 18%, which is really significant. Why is that? Why, why, why the difference? Not sure. Again, every country's managing it differently. It's it's just a it's just a measure of where we're at, and they look they might be much further in the pandemic than we are. Clearly, we've been able to reduce numbers. There's an interesting one that I will just mention, which is the USA, and that's has a case fatality rate of around five point seven percent. Now, the only reason I mentioned that one is because it draws in the political sphere to say we know they're having trouble with widespread testing. So the political environment can actually change these numbers a bit. So it's if you have an excellent testing apparatus to be able to test lots of people in a short amount of time and respond, then it does make a difference. If you don't know how many people have it to begin with and you have limited amount of testing, then the R value or the CFR value somewhat becomes problematic. Yes, and, and in, in the political think, that's where testing is a chicken and egg thing. If we have more testing, do we have more COVID or vice versa? In a moment, though, what I'd like to do is compare different uh, coronavirus outbreaks and also, without you having any forward notice, get you to debunk a bit of conspiracy theory thinking that I've encountered in social media circles. So I'll just pop this form under your windscreen and I'll get you to head over to Bay 1 and Michelle will see you over there for your swab. Thanks so much. Not a problem. Our current grappling with COVID-19 isn't the first of the coronavirus outbreaks that the world has uh, come across. But I need to start with something that has been in social media circles that I've seen, Travis. There has been a wonderful illustration of, in the first six months of this year, uh, death rates from COVID-19, measles, uh, earthquakes, all sorts of things that are normal factors that lead to death. And it's staggering how COVID comes from COVID nineteen comes from nowhere, and ends up being the leading cause in six months. And there's a lot of chatter by people saying, "Oh yes, but someone dies with a car accident, also with COVID nineteen, it gets chalked up as a COVID nineteen death," which I think is a misunderstanding of comorbidity. Is that the best way to argue back in the and, and allay people's fears that COVID-19 has some press secretary that's trying to make it sound worse than it is? Because there is the danger of this complacent thinking which primes us for a second wave. Yep. So the cause of death will normally be, uh, it's a legal document that has to be filled out. Doctors often have to identify what was the actual cause of death. Now, we know that there are what we call comorbidities. So you will have something, it's not necessarily the cause of death, but we will put it down in the death certificate, say, oh, we also. So let's let's use the example of a heart attack. We also know that you smoke a bit and you had, let's say, uh, COPD. So you might have a massive heart attack, die of that and had COPD. Now, 
On the form, you will actually say they died of a heart attack, but down lower, you also had these other conditions. So the cause of death will be done by a medical practitioner or someone who was legally authorized to do that. So if someone dies in a car accident and happens to have COVID, the COVID didn't kill them. Uh, it might be there and they may mention it. I don't know if they would, but with the car accident, you would say the you know, blunt force trauma or something will have caused the death, not the COVID. So uh, that is a, a legal uh, uh, requirement for doctors and we're, we're not that, uh, that insane and wanting to actually up the numbers of COVID. Yes, well, there's a lot of reducto ad absurdum in the discourse on social media around that. But let's stay with the theme of nuance. Coronavirus, we've had previous outbreaks. How does COVID-19 differ from others? Yep. So we've had, uh, well, this is the third outbreak of coronavirus in 20 years. So if we look at the, the first, the most recent one was, aside from COVID, was MERS which is Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. So this came out of 2012 from Saudi Arabia. Uh, it was responsible for around 2,500 infections, about 800 deaths, and it had a case fatality rate, so a CFR, of about 35%, which is very high and quite concerning. It spread to 20 countries and had an incubation time. So when we say incubation time, when you first encounter the pathogen, how long it takes for you to show symptoms. And the virus is replicating about five days. So with that, it was quite concerning. And then we look at it and say, well, from the population perspective, how did this not take off? And what they calculated was that the reproductive rate, the R value, was less than one. So people in close contact, particularly healthcare workers and family people, could get the disease, but it just didn't seem to spread, didn't have the transmissibility that other viruses, like measles, it just didn't get going. So it affected close contacts, but the R value of one, and eventually it disappeared. And with the incubation period of five days, reasonably quickly you're going to know that you're carrying. That's right. So you can contact trace that very well. We then have then SARS, so severe acute respiratory syndrome. Now that was started in China. It was responsible for around 8,000 infections, had about 700 deaths with a case fatality rate of around 7%. So the fatality rate has gone down compared to MERS and it went to 17 countries. But when we look at the reproductive rate, it was measured between two and four, meaning that one person could pass it on to anywhere between two and four people. So when you look at that, you go, well, what happened to SARS? Because that is far more, has a bigger R value, reproductive rate, than MERS. And what happened with that one? So when we compare that with COVID, why is COVID taken off, but SARS didn't? And so this is when you start to look, because they're very similar. When we actually look at COVID, it has an incubation time of about four to five days. SARS had an incubation time of eight to nine days. So it took a little bit longer for it to go. But the main difference, not from that, is actually needing to look at the virus itself. And when we look at the virus, 
and how people present with it, we find that both MERS and SARS had a calculated asymptomatic rate of about 10%, meaning that if you had 10 people in a room, either had MERS or SARS, one in 10 might be asymptomatic. When we look at COVID, there are a few references when we're trying to measure that, but some studies have said that the asymptomatic rate is between 40 to 80%, which is you have 10 people of COVID in a room. Let's just take middle ground, 50%, five out of 10 may be completely asymptomatic. And that with a reproductive rate for both SARS and COVID, similar being, let's say around two. So one person can pass it on to two people and one of those people chances are, will probably be asymptomatic if we don't. And hence COVID-19 earning pandemic status. Well, that's right. If we actually look at how did COVID take off? So let's, let's just put ourselves, it's December 2019. It's a new infection we've never come across before in that we are aware of. It's got a short incubation time of four to 4.5 days. So it takes a little while but not too long to to start showing symptoms if it shows symptoms the person who gets it is infective and coughing up a day or two beforehand before they start showing symptoms if they show symptoms and for a week afterwards you put that in a city of 11 million people with the international airport and ports it's early december just before every christmas happens on the 24th And you've got Chinese New Year at the end of January 2020. That's how a pandemic starts. Wow. So from here on in, what's the the message that we should all be vigilant of within medical fraternities? It will be, I I think what will happen now, I, I don't think anything will change significantly other, we'll just be more aware of if this is to happen again, I think governments will be more reactionary earlier than what they are. And what you've seen is governments waiting a little bit before reacting, and you'll see every government's actually had a different response, and you can see from those R graphs where they've responded, where they've responded well. Uh, And some countries uh, have been excellent with their response. So if we look at the different countries, you can look at the graphs and you'll actually see what their R values, what countries have been able to flatten the curve and which have not been able to, what policies they've instituted and what uh, approach to the populations they have. Now, there is a tipping point as to when someone's going to have an economy that opens up And that is when it goes into the political field and it moves on from epidemiology into the political realm. So in closing, in in your pathological life, how satisfying must it be for you and your colleagues to be the people we're relying on most who can tell when even when people are asymptomatic that there's something going on? It's, it's a testament to people who develop the test. We're, we're able to use their brilliance to, to identify this test. But if you think about it, the test didn't exist seven months ago. Uh, the virus was probably in the bat population, uh, but didn't cross the species barrier until December, around that time. 
uh, we've been able to get widespread worldwide testing uh, to be able to institute and facilitate identification and now it's up to people in, in regards to the public health to identify where those pockets are because what's going to happen now is you're going to have pockets go up and try and just isolate because you're not going to be able to we're not going to get rid of this and that's just that's unfortunately the way it is it's going to be one of those ones that we just have to manage dr travis brown i'd like to shake your hand but i won't <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> This Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references and learning objectives when applicable can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au and you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr. Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. Thanks again for listening. And just a reminder, if you haven't done it yet, have a quick search in your podcast app for our second series, This Medical Life. Dr. Travis Brown has rolled up some extra guests, some extra topics, and we continue the story there. And we'd love to have you along.